I lived in Germany during the Nazi Holocaust. I considered myself a Christian. We heard stories of what was happening to the Jews. We tried to distance ourselves from all of that because what could anyone really do to stop it? A railroad track ran behind our small church and on each Sunday morning, we could hear the whistle in the distance and the wheels coming over the tracks. We became disturbed when we heard the cries coming from the train. As it passed by, we realized that it was carrying Jews like cattle in those cars. And week after week, the, the whistle would blow and we dreaded to hear that sound because we knew that it would soon be followed by the cries of Jews en route to a death camp and their screams tormented us. We also knew what time during the church service the train was coming. So we would hear the whistleblower letting us know that it was drawing closer and we would begin singing hymns. And by the time the train came past our church, we were singing at the top of our voices. If we heard the screams, we sang more loudly and soon we heard them no more. That was a long time ago and many years have passed and no one talks about it anymore. But I still hear that train whistle in my sleep. God, forgive me, forgive all of us. We called ourselves Christians, yet did nothing. Most of us hear a story like that and we are horrified. We can't imagine singing louder as the trains go by. We imagine ourselves taking a stand, making a difference. None of us want to be complacent when there are lives in danger. It's easier to talk about the danger of the Holocaust than the danger of our world. We all see the mess of our world, right? It's like a recipe for destruction. You start with anxiety being at an all-time high. Then you add to that the stress and strain many feel around personal finances. Fold into that a large portion of political division. Knead it well with inciting news headlines and constant provoking posts on social media. And what that produces is what we are all getting. And none of us like it. We all want to do something, but what? The problems seem too big for us to solve. And we're afraid of making things worse. So we often do nothing. And before we know it, we try to distract ourselves with entertainment or busyness or some way to numb ourselves into ignoring the problem. But it doesn't have to be this way. There is a way forward through Jesus, and he is calling his followers to move from complacency to a commitment to share his way of life with everyone. And that's what we want to talk about in this video. Because here at Community Christian Anywhere, we believe no matter who you are, what you even believe about God, you can have a life full of joy and meaning and rest. Because no matter what you think about God, I believe He can't stop thinking about you. He is for you and only has good things in mind for you. And we want to help you find all that God has in store for you by learning together what it means to love everyone always. And the love of God is not complacent about the problems in our world but is committed to working for our good. And this can be true of you too. So let's learn together. Hi, my name is Kelly and welcome to Community Christian Anywhere. Now, many people think the opposite of complacency is aggressive hostility. I mean, if you aren't cursing those who are against you, if you're not raging against those who disagree with you, then that somehow makes you complacent. But the problem with that for followers of Jesus is 
our example, Jesus. He was always under pressure. People were always trying to get him to take sides. They were always trying to pressure him to change the world through some kind of political power, position to change the world by force. I mean, that's how you did it. And Jesus just refused to take part in their political plans. Now, that's not to say Jesus didn't speak about their politics. He did. He talks a lot about the kingdom that he was bringing, but it was a whole new kingdom. And he rejected the power and the position that tends to go along with politics. And the disciples, they struggled with this. They're frustrated by it. I think in part, this is one of the reasons why Judas betrayed Jesus. Like we think Judas betrayed Jesus for money. He was just greedy and he wanted the 30 pieces of silver. But I think it was more than that because four days before the betrayal, Jesus is riding into town and the crowd's proclaiming him to be king. And I think the disciples, it's the moment they've been waiting on. It's the moment for him to take the political power and position. The disciples knew what Jesus could do. They knew he had the power and this was the opportunity and Jesus refuses. And so Judas betrays. He leads hundreds of soldiers into the garden where Jesus is praying. I think a part of what Judas might've been trying to do was trying to force Jesus into position to show what kind of power he had. I mean, surround him with hundreds of soldiers and stand back. Let's see what he'll do. The soldiers come. John 18 says, they ask, which one of you is Jesus? And Jesus says, I am he. And the moment he says it, they all fall to the ground. <laughs> the moment he says, I'm he, all the soldiers fall to the ground. And now the disciples are like, okay, here we go. Peter pulls out a sword and he takes off the ear of one of the Roman soldiers. And what does Jesus do? He heals the soldier and he says, hey, Peter, we don't do it that way. Don't you realize that, that if I wanted to do that, I, I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us and he'd send them instantly? Did you think it was a question of power? That's not the kingdom I came to bring. He didn't come to bring a kingdom of hostility. He came to bring a different kind of kingdom. Now, was that because Jesus was complacent in this world? No, it's not because he was complacent. He just came to bring a different kind of kingdom. In the kingdom that Jesus came to bring, you consider others better than yourself. In the kingdom that Jesus came to bring, someone strikes you one cheek, you turn the other cheek as well. That sounds cowardly. Okay. Give that a shot. See if it doesn't take a lot of courage to trust God instead of fighting back. In the kingdom that he came to bring, you bless those who curse you. And you don't curse those who curse you. And you love your enemies. Now, maybe you don't know this, so I'll just say it plainly. The way forward for us is to be committed to that kingdom. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is the kingdom that you're called to advance. If you're a follower of Jesus, you can speak up about your political beliefs. You can speak up about your opinions and ideologies that you disagree with. You can take a stand and you can make your case. But let's be clear, the moment you stop loving your enemies, which means you enter in for their good and you work for their good, the moment you stop loving them that way, the moment you start to curse those who disagree with you, the moment that happens, you need to sit down and shut your mouth. Ask God to forgive you. That's not the kingdom that Jesus came to bring. That's not the kingdom he came to advance. And it will not be the way forward. So we want to do something. We don't want to be complacent. 
We want to move forward in the power and spirit of Jesus. But don't confuse humility and love with complacency. Jesus, he's not complacent. In the same way, don't confuse hostility and rage with commitment. We want to move forward. We want to see the full force of the church released to love people one life at a time. This was and has been the way that Jesus is changing the world. This was consistent pattern of the church that Jesus launched that changed the world. And what I want us to do is, I just want us to look at a couple examples of this from the account of the church found in the book of the Bible called Acts. Uh, let's start with the story of a couple who started out committed and then they became complacent and their complacency has a way to leading to compromise. So let me set the scene for this couple by starting a little bit earlier in the description of the church. It says, all the believers were of one heart and mind and no one claimed that any of their possessions were their own. Now, that's being united. They shared everything they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy people among them. So one of the ways you see the power of God at work in this church is taking care of the people who are in need. It's one of the evidences that God is at work in the church. Here's one of the ways that happened. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them. They brought the money of the sales and they put them at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. So I just want to point out a couple of things. First, the early church demonstrated their commitment through sacrificial generosity. See, commitment is demonstrated by what we sacrifice for. Sacrifice is giving up something you love for something or someone you love more. You show me who or what you sacrifice for and I'll show you who or what you're committed to. Jesus is the one who made this connection for us. He talked a whole bunch about money because money tells the story of your commitment. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, for wherever your riches are, that's where your heart will be also. What you sacrifice for, it reveals the level, the depth of your commitment. And so the early church, they modeled their commitment through sacrificial generosity. The second thing I, I wanna draw your attention to is that they help people in need by giving through the church. Uh, we tend to talk about giving to the church, but we really need to see here is that they gave through the church. And the reason I want to point that out to you is because if you study church history, it's one of the factors of why the early church has such a huge impact in the world. It's because believers came together and they gave generously to help people in need, but they did it through the church and in doing it through the church, it pointed people to Jesus and connected people to the family of God. Now, I'll tell you, if I'm really honest, that's not necessarily how I like to do it. It feels really way better to me personally. If I'm gonna be generous, I wanna give it personally. And nothing wrong with that, that's certainly good. That isn't to say there's not a good thing that can come out of that, but there are some warnings around it, like warnings about pride and control, and those things, but it's not a bad thing to do. Oh, here's what we know from the history of the church that changed the world. The early church had such a great impact upon their culture because the believers were giving sacrificially and then the church was able to give to people who were in need. And one of the things that happened was that the people were drawn to Jesus and his movement instead of thinking, man, what a great person I met today. 
and it's not just in history. One of the things that we've done here at Community Christian is that when we partner with organizations around the world to help people in need, we give to groups that do their work through the local church in those countries so the church can become the hero in those countries and not the organization from the U.S. because we want to connect them to Jesus and his people. And that's where this couple's story begins. They're part of this extraordinarily generous church where people are selling possessions and bringing the money to the church and then the church distributes so that there's no need among them. It's not that the people back in this group didn't care about their lands and their homes. They cared about them. They just cared about the mission that they were on with Jesus more. There was a certain man named Ananias who with his wife Sapphira sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, but he claimed it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. So notice the problem. Ananias and Sapphira sell some property and only give part of the money. But the problem isn't that they didn't give all the money. It's that they said they were giving all the money and then they only gave part of it. The issue was an issue of full commitment. What they were doing was different than what they were saying they were doing. So Peter confronts the husband about it. And Peter says, how can you do this thing? You're not lying to us, but you're lying to God. It's not just us, it's that you're lying to God. It's not us you're withholding from, it's God. When he, Ananias, heard this, he fell down and died. Wait, what? Why? Like he gave some of the money, it's not about that. It's about the commitment he made, and it's about the community he was a part of. God takes those things seriously. What he is doing is undermining the whole community that was so united. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, this is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Well, that seems extreme, but I'll bet everyone was really honest for a little while. Now, if you've never heard that before, you have to be thinking, that's the Jesus movement? Like, I've heard that odd things happen in the Old Testament, but I wasn't expecting this out of the stories of the church. And I want to admit, this is a bizarre story. Now, if you heard that story since you were a kid, it may not feel that strange. In fact, you may have even learned a song about it if you went to vacation Bible school. I mean, imagine kids singing these words. One, two, one, two, three, four. Ananias and Sapphira got together to conspire a plot to cheat the church and get ahead. They knew God's power but did not fear it. Tried to cheat the Holy Spirit, Peter prophesied, and they both dropped dead. Yeah, dark and strangely cheerful. But that's not all. Then the happy chorus goes. Well, I guess so. I mean, is that all God's interested in, is getting my money? But you should see, the story is not really about money. It's that we should not underestimate how much our commitment matters to God. It really matters to Him. We often make it sound like all that really matters is, did I do more good than bad? So we don't like to talk about money, even though it might be the thing that has the biggest hold on our lives. And we don't talk about personal commitments that we make to God and don't keep. 
And yet, Jesus talks a lot about both. Jesus talks about how we use money a lot because he seems to think that our use of money tells the story of our commitments. Money has a way of testifying to what we are committed to. Jesus' brother James, in the letter he writes in the Bible, says to people who are rich, your problem is your selfishness. He says, your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. We have a tendency to think that good stewardship can often be seen by the amount of money saved and the pile of possessions that we accumulate throughout our lifetime. We think that when we die, they testify to our success. But Jesus' brother says, oh, they do testify, but in our selfishness, they testify against us. Peter asks Ananias, how could you do a thing like this? And Ananias doesn't answer. But I think I understand how it happened. I think it has a lot to do with complacency. I think Ananias is just complacent. When he first thought about doing something like this, he probably thought, what am I thinking? That's a terrible idea. I committed to give the full amount. I'm going to give the full amount. But then he started to think about different ways they could use the money if he kept some of it for themselves, which would also have been fine to do, but they didn't want to lose face with the rest of the community of the church. So what if we just give part of it, but we let them think it's all of it? It's complacency. Complacent with the truth. Complacent with commitments. Complacent with the community that trusts you. Complacent with what matters to God. And so I want us to talk about that because I know God is calling us as a church out of complacency. But the challenge is how do you call complacent people out of complacency? Because if you're complacent, by definition, you don't care. You're complacent about your complacency, so you don't really care about being complacent. How do I call us out of that? So what I want to do is give you some different descriptions of complacency to, to help you wake up. Number one, complacency is a feeling of indifference that settles over a long period of time. It's just getting used to the way things are. At first, something bothers you and you think, I, I need to do something about that. And over time, you just begin to accept it. Years ago, Becky and I lived in a house that was right next to a very active freight train line. The train came through several times a day. And when we first moved in, frankly, it's about all we could hear. We knew every time it came through, but it didn't take very long before we didn't even notice that there was a train there anymore. We only thought about the train when somebody would come and visit and stay overnight with us and say, how do y'all ever get any sleep around here with that train going through? We'd be like, you know what? We don't even notice it anymore. That's a picture of complacency. And it happens to you spiritually as well. Number two, complacency is the inner voice that convinces you that somebody else will do something about the problem. In psychology, this is called the bystander effect. It's the idea that if you're sitting in a crowd of people and you see something that needs to be done, you're aware that there are a whole bunch of people that could do it, so you just think, well, it's not that I don't care about it, but somebody else will do something about that. Somebody else who has more time, they'll serve. Someone else who has more money, they'll give. Someone else will foster that child. Someone else will help that addicted person. I mean, I do care but I know somebody else will do something. That, that's complacency. 
Number three, complacency is often disguised as procrastination. Hey, it's not that I'm not gonna do it. I'm just not doing it right now. I do plan on making sure my kids know the importance of following Jesus, but right now, right now, well, right now we have a practice to get to. I, I do plan to help. I do plan to give. I do plan to love those that God has put around me so that they can find the source of love is God through me. I'm going to do that. I can just imagine Ananias saying, you know, Sapphira, it's not so much a lie because we're, we're gonna give the full amount, we are. We're just not gonna give it right now. Number four, complacency is this unhealthy and unaware self-satisfaction with your life by looking at the lowest common denominator, if you will. By that I mean, well, I'll just talk about men since I've been one a, a long time. And specifically, I see this in husbands and dads. Husbands and dads tend to turn their job performance as a husband or dad into a competition, but they only measure themselves against people that they know they can beat. It's sort of like the Atlanta Falcons saying, hey, we know we're a mediocre professional football team, but we're way better than East Coweta High School. <laughs> okay, what I mean is we tend to measure ourselves on a curve. And because we're doing better than some people, so we have this kind of unhealthy and unaware self-satisfaction, and it leads us to never really looking at what God wants us to do in and through us. Because why would we? I mean, we're complacent. Number five, complacency is inaction even when an impending threat calls for action. There's something that's happening and you need to do something about it, Well, you're not doing anything. You've seen it on the news when there's a wildfire and it's burning and a firefighter goes and pounds on the doors trying to get people to evacuate because they don't realize how close the fire is and the people think that they still have time. And so they're watching. They're watching the fire in the family room on the news, and it says the fire is getting closer and it's threatening their home, but they don't leave because they're complacent. And in this season, it's one of the things we're going to be doing as a church. We're gonna be going like those firefighters, pounding on doors. We're just gonna to try to help people wake up, recognize the urgency of what we as followers of Christ have been called to do. We're gonna help people recognize the urgency in the world, the needs of the world that we live in, and we're, gonna, we're not gonna turn away from that. I heard on a podcast about an occupation in the early 20th century. It was in Great Britain. People who had this job were responsible to go by and knock on the doors of other people in the community and wake them up. This is before their alarm clocks. So there no alarm clocks, and so people had this job. It's the first part of the Industrial Revolution and they're in mill villages and this was their job. And the job title, and I know we're in the 21st century and this is a really unfortunate title, but they were called the knocker-uppers. I don't think you should put that on your resume today, but it was a real job in the early 20th century. These people stayed up and they stayed aware because people relied on them to come and knock on the door and make sure they were up and they were ready to go to work. There's a sense in which the way forward for us as a church and a world that's so, I mean, really changing, there's a sense in which our job will be making sure that people are awake and ready. But that's gonna require that we move from complacency to being committed. I, I really hope some of you are hearing an alarm and it's getting your attention. 
because the whistle in our culture is blowing and the train's passing by. And we're not gonna just gather together and sing louder. We're gonna move from being complacent to being committed. If you wanna join God in his mission to make this world look more like heaven, you have to take a step out of isolation and into community. The way we say it around here is that we want your interaction with our community to be more than just content you consume, like watching this video right now, to become a community you can be committed to, because it's moving from complacency to commitment that makes all the difference. All you have to do is take a step to reach out to us by texting the words next step to the number on the screen. And our speaker for today would love to help you get connected with our community here because we wanna help you find all that God has in store for you and your life and your future as you learn from Jesus how to love everyone always. So please don't hesitate to text, but no matter what you do, I hope you leave knowing that no matter what you think about God, He can't stop thinking about you.